My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Today, I had the chance to sit down and chat with Dan O'Flaherty. Dan has helped build and sell two junior mining companies. He spent 10 years as an investment banker here in Vancouver, and he's now CEO of Mavericks Metals, a royalty and streaming company located in Vancouver, BC. Mavericks was founded two years ago by Jeff Burns, the previous CEO of Pan American Silver, who personally tapped Dan to come on board to run the company. Now, this is an episode I've been looking forward to recording for some time now, because not only is Dan a friend of mine, he also used to be my boss before he left to run Mavericks. Over the two years I spent working with Dan, I learned a lot about how mining companies are financed, how to evaluate projects, and how to build companies, and listeners are going to hear a lot of that in this episode today. We really have a chance to dig into how the royalty and streaming model actually works, why it is such an important financial tool for both mining companies and investors, and how Dan personally looks at investment opportunities. Also, if you've ever sat down and wondered, what exactly is it that investment bankers do? This is probably the episode for you. So without further ado, let me please introduce Dan O'Flaherty, CEO of Mavericks Metals. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Jamie, thank you for having me. So right now we are sitting in Mavericks office. We're in downtown Vancouver, and we're going to chat about about your background, Mavericks Metals, how you got here, and where the company's going. And this is something I've been looking forward to for a while because We've had the chance to know each other and even work together over the last several years, but I've never really been able to corner you and pick your brain and ask you all the questions I wanted to, so now we can do it in front of thousands of people. Well, uh, thank you for having me uh, here today, and looking forward to having a good chat. Good. All right. Um, So today you're the CEO of Mavericks Metals, but you've had several interesting roles in the mining space and the financing space. But I wanted to start off discussing, before we get to the specifics of any of those, you know, when was the first time you found yourself drawn to mining and what made you want to go into that sector in this industry? Uh, Thanks, Jamie. Well, I uh, graduated University of British Columbia here with a a commerce degree, and right out of Mm -hmm. school, I was hired by Macquarie to start in their uh, mining-specific mergers and acquisitions group. So right out of school, I I immediately was was working in the mining sector, and at that time, uh, about 15 years ago now, that was right when the the metals markets were really starting to to, to gain some initial momentum in kind of 2003 after, uh, you know, a a pretty long downturn. So you're at Macquarie, you are the junior level as an investment banker, is that right? Yes, that's correct. So for our listeners that don't know, um, what does that actually consist of? What are the 
joys and sorrows <laughs> of that role. Uh, well, I was incredibly fortunate that I, I landed in a, a very uh, a great group. Uh, mm-hmm. It was led by George Brack and, and Marcus Chalk, and you know, with the the relationships that they had built up, and with where um, you know we were at in the metal cycle at the very beginning of what turned out to be a kind of a, a super bull market run, it was uh, an incredibly place, uh, incredibly interesting um, kind of team to, to land yeah. in. There was lots of uh, activity on the go. Uh, as the junior most person, I was, uh, you know, the, the hours were a, a little long, uh, but, uh, you know, I think it was a tremendous learning experience, and we got some uh, some great uh, transaction experience, and being able to learn from uh, George Brack and Marcus Strzok, uh, you know, it was, um, I was incredibly lucky. So you were at Macquarie for how many years? I was at Macquarie for approximately four years. And if I remember correctly, you transferred over to Scotia after that. Is that correct? That's right. I was at Macquarie from 2003, and then in 2000, at the end of 2006, we, uh, I ended up starting at, uh, at Scotia Bank in, in Vancouver. So a lot of people I've spoke to don't actually understand what investment bankers do. Yeah. Um, you know, at the junior stage, you're obviously making presentations, doing analysis of assets and companies. But when you get to the more of a senior level, you were were you a VP at the at the height of your investment banking career or where did uh, you I was go? a director when I left the investment banking and that was after after ten years of, of doing the investment banking role. So what do what do directors do? What does that level actually do specifically in the mining industry? Oh, that's a great question, and uh, I'm sure if you asked uh, a number of different uh, people in the investment banking industry, you'd get a different <laughs> answer from, from each of them. But yes. uh, you know, generally speaking, the uh, you know the, the investment banking industry does provide a, a connection from the issuing companies, the underlying uh, mining companies, and then the capital markets. Um, so, being a, an intermediary uh, in, in that fashion with respect to advising on mergers and acquisitions, raising capital, whether it's through equity or through debt, but yep. uh, you know the, the investment bankers provide that uh, intermediary service uh, for the mining companies. So, I mean, we would have seen a lot of this at that time in a, in a bull market. There's going to be a lot of new CEOs that you know potentially come from a technical background that yeah. don't have any transactional or financial experience. They'd bring in bankers to help advise on this, right? So when they're, yeah. they're raising their capital, or if they're fortunate enough to have a hit, uh, have a valuable asset to sell that asset to another company. That's exactly right. And specifically, you know, mining companies, their their focus should be on running their companies, which is, you know, the underlying assets, the underlying operations and and making them uh, run smoothly. Where the the bankers come into play is their entire focus is on the capital markets. Um, You know, so it's a a great relationship that that tends to be uh, somewhat symbiotic. Mm -hmm. So investment banks are often um, termed to have the model of the upper out model, right? So there's a there's a lot of pressure to advance through the ranks and to really grind away until you reach a certain level. Um, otherwise, people often leave, right? So a lot of people who get to the director level, they'll stay there their entire career. <laughs> no, that's a, I think that would be a, a fair comment to make. Um, you know, once you put in that, that level of experience here, you tend, which, is, uh, which is long for an investment bank, you tend to, a lot of people tend to stay there. Uh, you know, myself, I really enjoyed the experience I had, but I really wanted to, to, be, uh, to be on the mining company side. I right. think, uh, you know, one of the benefits of being, um, you know, in the financial advisory uh, business is you get to see a lot of transactions, and you get that kind of wide range of, of transactions 
extraction experience. But being on uh, the actual underlying mining company, um, you know, you get the the benefits and the, and the fallbacks of living with those deals uh, and actually, um, you know, seeing them follow through and, uh, you know, being with that over the course of the several years uh, and seeing how those transactions turn out as opposed to just moving on to the next uh, next deal. So when you decided to leave, you went and you co-founded a company. Can you place us when that was and and how old you were at that point? Uh, certainly. Actually, when I first uh, left Scotia, uh, that would have been in 2012. Um, you know, I, that was actually before uh, we co-founded Anthem. It was uh, I left to join uh, Esperanza, uh, which was a, a development uh, company with an asset in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was part of a transaction uh, where Greg Smith uh, came in as CEO, where it was a really a transition from a development team that Bill Pinkins had put together on the exploration front to a, a mine construction team that that Greg Smith wanted to put together to to move the asset forward to a a construction decision. Right. So you joined as, what was your role there? Vice President of Corporate Development. And so you guys actually transacted on that asset relatively quickly. Is that right? Uh, That is correct. In 2012, uh, Greg joined as CEO and and raised a little bit of money, put a, a team to move the asset to the next step. Um, over the course of the next kind of 12 to 16 months, um, you know, there was interest uh, in the asset. Uh, our intention and goal was to, was to really build a multi-asset company. We did announce a, a transaction with Pan American Silver at Esperanza to acquire some additional development assets to, to build the portfolio up. Uh, ultimately, uh, there was an all-cash premium offer made for the company, and uh, you know we presented that to shareholders, and that's uh, and shareholders accepted that offer um, from Alamos Gold. All right. So, at this point, this is 2013. You're only about 30 years old at this point. Is that correct? Uh, 32 in 32. 2013. Yeah. So you've had 10 years of investment banking experience. You've mm-hmm. helped build and sold a company. Mm-hmm. What do you do at this point? Uh, well, at that point, uh, in 2013, going back, the transaction closed in about August of 2013. Uh, it was a very, I'll call it, a quiet time in the mining capital markets in Vancouver. Yeah. Um, you know, there was not a lot of money being raised. Um, you know, Greg Smith uh, and myself, we uh, we co-founded Anthem uh, United to, to really evaluate uh, opportunities and where you could capitalize on where we were at in that point of the uh, the metal cycle in 20, uh, 2013. Okay, so Anthem gets started. Uh, you raised a bit of money into it. You guys put quite a bit of your own capital in, if I remember correctly. You start looking for opportunities, and you end up deciding to partner with a team in Peru to build what's been termed a toll milling company, which is buying ore from artisanal miners, processing that, and selling the end product at a profit. Right. We looked at, uh, at a number of opportunities um, before settling on uh, the project Cori Concha in Peru. Uh, and the challenge was there was not a lot of great projects out there that, that were uh, potential to transact on. Where we saw an opportunity with the uh, custom ore processing plant is, uh, you know, a, a of money-making business that could actually generate uh, cash flow and not right. go through the exploration and, and development cycle of a mining company where right. there was not a lot of capital out there to provide, um, you know, th- those companies. And I, I think yeah, that's important to remember that at this point it was 2014-ish and there was little to no money to be raised in in the mining scene here in Canada for 
exploration level projects or speculative projects at all. So pulling in an asset that was potentially cash flow positive very quickly had a lot of appeal. That's exactly where uh, where we landed on and decided to, to pursue that opportunity. Okay. So let's let's talk about you are the executive vice president for Anthem, um, and Greg Smith is the CEO. But over the next couple of years, you transition out of Anthem, and then you eventually come to what becomes Mavericks Metals. Can we talk about that transition and what, what attracted you to the royalty space and then Mavericks and as a whole in general? Uh, certainly. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. And I can go back to you know when I was in the investment banking space. Yeah. A lot of what we advised on in terms of giving advice on transaction structures was in the royalty and, and streaming business. Uh, so I had a, a number of, of transaction experiences in that sector already. Also, what we advised on in our group was in the silver space as well. Um, so I have known Jeff Burns for, you know, essentially since I uh, entered the industry in, in 2003 as he was the, the CEO of Pan American Silver at that time. Right. Um, so I've had a long relationship with, with Jeff. Uh, you know, he knew my background um, as, as an investment banker and my focus on uh, on both the silver space and on the royalty and, and streaming sector. Um, so it seemed to be... Uh, a natural fit when he wanted to put to Mavericks together, and and just going back and and give a little background as to how Mavericks got started, if, uh, if that'd be helpful. Yeah, please. Yeah. Uh, so so Jeff Burns, who is uh, who's the chairman of Mavericks, he was the the CEO of Pan American Silver, one of the larger silver producers globally, uh, for twelve years. In uh, in 2015, he had decided to to step down uh, from that role and look for uh, look for a new challenge. Okay. And over the course of that transition to the now CEO uh, Michael Steinman, Jeff was doing uh, he was reviewing actually their annual information form for Pan American Silver and realized that they had all these kind of royalties that were scattered throughout the larger operating empire of Pan American and they weren't necessarily getting any market value. Uh, uh, underneath the uh, kind of the mines uh, that uh, that were the primary focus of Pan American. So I want to take a step back, and first I want to ask a very simple question: yeah. What is a royalty, yeah. and what is a stream? Sure, the uh, royalty is simply a right to receive a, a percentage of future revenue generated from a, a mining operation. And I think the important thing to, to note is that this is a, a calculation based on revenue, so it's not based on profit or uh, after costs or whatnot. So a royalty has a very high claim on the revenue uh, as opposed to being uh, calculated out of profit. So whether that mining company is ever profitable doesn't matter. If their mine or their operation is making any revenue at all, yeah. the person that owns a royalty on that mine or the company that owns a royalty on that mine will get paid no matter what, essentially. Certainly, we want our operating partners and, and mining companies in general to be able to deliver great returns for their shareholders, um, but you would be correct that uh, the royalty is calculated off revenue and not off those final uh, kind of post-return numbers for the mining companies. So, I mean, look, I mean, think about what does that do for the risk profile of a, of a, a royalty company or a streaming company yeah. as opposed to a traditional mining company? It's certainly because of the priority on, on revenue claims. It, it, it does have a... a a more diversified risk profile because mm-hmm. you know, our portfolio that we'll, we have, and we can talk about that in a little bit, we've got royalties on right now 11 producing mines, uh, and we're able to, and these are essentially roughly 1% to 3% of, of revenue of, of each of these mines. 
Um, but having 11 diversified uh, sources of cash flow allows us to really spread that risk out as opposed to having yep. kind of all of our focus on, on one or two assets. So if a royalty is a percentage of revenue, what is a stream? A stream is a contract uh, which allows uh, the royalty and streaming company to purchase metal from the underlying operator at a discount to the spot metal price. And it's generally a substantial discount. Uh, the streaming model in gold, uh, I would say the average purchase price is $400 per ounce that's being used right now. This is in a roughly $1,300 per ounce gold price environment. So it's, it's a very meaningful discount. And why the underlying operators would, would sell their kind of metal at a meaningful discount is it's typically a byproduct metal, um, not the primary metal of the, mm-hmm. of the mine. So if this is a, for example, we've got a, a metal stream on the La Carrada uh, silver lead zinc gold mine in Mexico. Gold makes up a very minor piece of the total revenue there. We have the right to buy that gold for $650 per ounce. We then tell, turn around and sell that gold at, at spot market at, at $1,300 per ounce, roughly. Now, this is something I've always wondered about. You see different royalty or different streaming companies apply this in different ways. And some of them, they do this, they do a stream on a secondary metal, right? Right. Whereas others do a stream on the primary metal at the mine. Right. What are the advantages to this or disadvantages that you can think of? And, I mean, I can see the obvious advantages to the secondary metal yeah. as it is less important to the operation. Mm-hmm. But is there any advantage to having it on the primary metal, or is that something that companies do because they're looking for financing and that's the best option they have at that time? Our, our, pre- our, preference at, our strong preference at Mavericks is to purchase streams on secondary metals. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's... Uh, one of the important uh, factors of a stream is to make sure that the underlying mine still continues to make a, a profit and a return for the, the, the operator. Uh, and when you take a large chunk of the primary metal, uh, that becomes a challenge for the underlying operators to still uh, make returns for their shareholders. Uh, one benefit uh, of a stream on the primary metal is that... Uh, both the, the operator and the uh, underlying stream holder are both, uh, you know, motivated in the same direction for, uh, you know, maximizing the batman right, production. Right. You know, this, the, this would come into play rarely when there are polymetallic uh, assets that have, you know, different metal breakdowns by area of the deposit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So probably the most famous uh, or well-known royalty or streaming company that focuses on the secondary metal is Silver Wheaton, which was originally set up to focus on silver streams. Is that correct? That's right. And now known as Wheaton Precious Metals, uh, Wheaton Precious, uh, originally Silver Wheaton, has done a tremendous job, uh, you know, building up uh, a, a, an excellent portfolio, but also building up uh, the streaming model um, such that, uh, you know, other entrants to the sector are able to also provo- provide, you know, a, a similar form of capital to uh, the underlying mining companies. So interestingly, to come full circle, when you were a banker at Macquarie, you did quite a bit of work with and around Silver Wheaton and helping develop their initial portfolio of assets and the acquisitions they were involved in. 
that's a that's a good question. I can talk a little bit about the history there. Uh, Silver Wheaton has done a, a now Wheaton Precious has done, as I said, an excellent job. And they began in, in uh, I believe it was two thousand and four uh, as a spin out of, of Wheaton River. Uh, this is a the polymetallic uh, San Damas mine in, in Mexico it was the original, I guess, creation uh, of Silver Wheaton where they took the silver and, and put it into a standalone vehicle being Silver Wheaton. And so this was the operating company. They separated out the, the value of the silver into its own company where it was held. Yes, and what this allowed uh, investors to do is if they wanted a, a pure play focus on silver, which Silver Wheaton was at that time, they had the opportunity to invest directly into a, a silver vehicle, Right. Uh, whereas the Wheaton River remained an operating company with the intention to continue to add operating mines, which Wheaton River also did very successfully into what is now Goldcorp. So after the initial spin-out of what became the Silver Stream, creating Silver Wheaton, how did they grow their portfolio and develop from there? Well, the initial buildup of Silver Wheaton was, as you mentioned, on, on purchasing the byproduct silver from polymetallic mines. Uh, our group at, at Macquarie had very recently advised Lundin Mining on its inaugural uh, acquisition, which was the acquisition of the Zincruven mine in Sweden, uh, which is primarily uh, a base metals mine, but also had silver byproduct credits. Uh, very quickly after Silver Wheaton was originally launched, we, uh, at our team at Macquarie, we advised Lundin Mining on selling the byproduct silver uh, to Silver Wheaton, and that was at the end of 2004 for approximately $80 million in, in cash and, and Silver Wheaton equity. Um, and that was, a, I think, a great win-win transaction for both Silver Wheaton. It was the first arm's-length deal that they had done. And for Lundin Mining, which was able to take the proceeds of that Silverstream sale and redeploy it into building their base metals operating company. And and how much did Lundin Mining purchase the mine for, which they then went and spun out the silver royalty from? Lundin Mining had purchased that uh, asset from Rio Tinto earlier that year for approximately U.S. $105 million. Uh, the transaction on the silver was uh, U.S. $83 million, uh, I believe. Uh, and, you know, a couple things to mention there is this is in a time of incredibly rising uh, metal price environment, right. uh, whereas Lundin was able to essentially turn around and use the proceeds of that to acquire uh, another company, Galmoy. Um, so you probably don't remember this off the top of your head, but do you know what percentage of the of the revenue coming out of that mine silver actually accounted for all in? Like, was it was it because you sold it for eighty percent of the value of the mine? Was it eighty percent of the of the revenue, or was it a smaller portion? I don't have the specific numbers, but it would have been under fifteen percent. Okay, so that's a <laughs> pretty tremendous leverage. And well, there was a a. a it was a very accretive model during that metal price environment. Uh, precious metals companies were trading at tremendously higher uh, valuation multiples, whether it's a price mm-hmm. to net asset value or price to cash flow uh, multiple than as than the base metals markets were. And it's actually an interesting comment as to how the the streaming sector as a, as a whole has evolved because the initial deals that, that Silver Wheaton um, w- was focused on was these byproduct uh, silver streams out of polymetallic mines. And that's that's evolved over the past 15 years. It's gone through different cycles, whether it has been for uh, balance sheet recapitalizations, uh, whether it has been for 
the development of, of large projects where the streamer has effectively acted as a financial joint venture partner. So in different metal price environments, uh, we've seen the the underlying operators take advantage of the uh, of the the streamers as a source of capital and uh, risk diversification. So there's there's sort of two styles of streams or, or royalties that I've seen uh, come about to be very general, but one of them is on producing assets, and these are cash flowing royalties or streams currently producing metal, and the other is on earlier stage assets, be they exploration or development stage projects. These carry obviously different risk profiles. What? How do you and Mavericks in particular look at investing in these different types of, of royalties, and how do you approach that? Uh, well, where we are at Mavericks, we are right now growing our cash flow profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our focus is primarily on, on cash flowing assets or assets with a clear path to production. Uh, there have been some great examples of other streamers um, pursuing stream there have been some great examples of other streamers pursuing streams on earlier trades assets where they've essentially helped fund construction and that's something that's a, a core part of the business model and something we'll be looking to do as we continue to, to grow so I guess when you're doing that you're you're taking on exploration risk earlier on and you don't know for certain that that stream will ever produce cash flow but it generally gets valued for something on your books, mm-hmm. and you generally, I assume, get a better deal on it when you're buying it. Well, I think that on on average would be very fair to say there is a, certainly a risk return uh, mm-hmm. for the earlier stage streams. There is the construction risk, um, you know, and the development risk as that uh, as that mine gets built. Yeah, uh, you also have to to park your capital for a longer period of time because it'll be a number of years before you start seeing a return on that cash flow. Uh, so with that different uh, risk and, and cash flow profile, the returns have typically been higher on those streams. When do you think streaming started? It was generally with Franco Nevada, I think, is the is the idea that they were the leader or the first one that I know of? Well, from a royalty perspective, Franco Nevada is obviously the uh, the original uh, <laughs> that, uh, that, that built up the, the mining royalty space, um, and that's going back... Uh, you know, to, to Peerless on in Nevada mm-hmm. days, uh, where he, um, you know, began Franco Nevada. Uh, so they've certainly been the, um, you know, the industry leader from the royalties perspective. Uh, it's interesting now that both uh, um, Franco Nevada and Wheaton Precious uh, do both royalties and streams. So yeah. the, the the companies in the sector have seemed to uh, have benefited from from each other's, um, you know, making the model better known. So we're getting more and more companies coming into the space now. It's become something from what was initially a, really a fringe financing model in the mining uh, sector to very common. And, I mean, you almost never see an operation that doesn't have some sort of royalty or stream on it now. Uh, that's probably generalizing, but it's very popular. So with more and more companies entering the space, where do you, where do you see certain ones going wrong? Like what are common mistakes that can be made for companies in the royalty and streaming space that investors should watch out for? Uh, well, I think the first comment is that the streaming and royalty space has grown dramatically to, um, you know, very humble beginnings to have a market cap of the sector of over U.S. $30 billion. So it is a, it's a very large uh, industry relative mm-hmm. to, um, I guess, the, the very small mining space as yeah. a whole. 
But uh, I think over the course of that evolution, there's been a lot of uh, lessons that have been learned uh, through tr- transactions. And, you know, I think what, what Mavericks is focused on, I can speak for, for uh, what we want to do going forward is, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we, we don't want to take up too much of the, of the revenue of the underlying mine so that the underlying operator can continue to make returns for their shareholders. That I believe that's very important, uh, that the, you know, percentage of revenue that is uh, delivered to the the royalty player is is relatively minor uh, with respect to the uh, overall mine economics. I think what's also important is, you know, for us, due diligence on the underlying resource. Uh, absolutely, uh, mm-hmm. for uh, a mine, you need to have uh, that uh, that resource there needs to be very fundamentally strong. That is definitely a focus of, of Mavericks. The other thing that we look at when we're evaluating uh, royalties or streams is who the underlying operator is. You know, we want strong operating partners. Uh, I believe we've been able to do that. Uh, the operators of our our largest royalties, you know, Pan American Silver at uh, La Colorada with the stream there, uh, Evolution Mining uh, with our royalty on Mount Carlton. You know, these are uh, very large, uh, capable operators as uh, as our partners. Yeah, I think that's important to point out. What, one of the first things you said there is that earlier on uh, when streaming was becoming popular, a lot of companies would put such a high royalty or such a high stream on it that could strangle the value of the asset for the actual operator, which then obviously hurt the operator and their shareholders, but also the streaming company or the, the royalty owner when it doesn't make sense to to mine anymore, when there's no value left for the underlying uh, owner of the asset. And that's not a win for anybody, uh, neither the, the underlying operator, the streamer, or, you know, the investor in, in both of those companies. I think, you know, we're very much, you know, looking at what we would categorize as win-win uh, transactions for both, you know, our shareholders as well as the shareholders of our underlying operating partners. So in 2016, Mavericks has started. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Burns brings you in to be CEO. Yeah. You initially sort of seed the company by spinning out the uh, these the royalties from Pan America Silver. What happens then? That's right. I'll, I'll take one quick st- uh, step backwards here. I know I mentioned it earlier that uh, that Jeff had identified these royalties that were really getting no value in the the much larger Pan American portfolio. Pan American being a, a multi billion dollar uh, market cap operator. Uh, Jeff went to the chairman of, uh, of Pan American Silver, Ross Beatty. Uh, you know, he's a very successful entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Jeff said, "Well, we have these royalties uh, that we can surface some value for uh, if we daylight them into a separate standalone vehicle." Uh, and Ross, when I stepped down as CEO of Pan American Steward, I could steward it as the chairman of uh, of Mavericks and. Um, you know, Ross, having been very successful, thought about that for probably about five seconds and said, that's a great idea. Uh, go about and, and get that launch. So that's what led to the initial launch in, in 2016. And we, uh, you know, began trading under the Mavericks ticker, uh, MMX, at, uh, in July of 2016. So I kind of want to dig into the mechanics of that a little bit for the interest of our readers, but also for my own interest. When, mm-hmm. when a company, you know, like Pan Am in this example has existing royalties on their books. Yes. Now, do they actually have they actually set up those royalties internally within the company and they're calculating their value and they know what they're worth or do they 
get the idea that they should have royalties and then they go and look in their books and then they separate them out and then what is the process is that a normal thing for companies to have their royalties being calculated at any given time well for uh, a mature operating company uh, like Pan American has been operating for uh, multiple decades just through the course of their uh, acquiring operating companies or acquiring assets or through land swaps uh, a number of royalties have been just created and they've sat dormant in their portfolio. I can mm-hmm. I can give one example is we have a royalty on Atlantic Gold's uh, Moose River um, consolidated project in eastern Canada that they just put into production in, in Q4 of uh, 2017, and they did that very successfully. But this royalty was created in the 1990s, uh, and it was created by Corner Bay Exploration, who was doing exploration in both eastern Canada as well as Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the course of this exploration, they were doing a number of land swaps and joint ventures, which created royalties, um, where they would allow uh, another exploration company to explore on their ground in exchange for taking a royalty back. Right. Uh, Pan American Silver ended up acquiring Corner Bay for the Alamo Dorado project in Mexico in around 2002, and with it came this royalty that essentially sat... uh, you know, in a, in a subsidiary, you know, somewhat dormant for, for Pan American Silver for, you know, a number of years. And so does a company like Pan Am get, do they get any value on their books for these things? Like when, if, I, if I'm an analyst at a bank trying to put a value on Pan American Silver, am I pouring through the financial statements and MDMAs to find these hidden royalties or are they more or less ignored? Uh, in general, they're more or less ignored. It's uh, just a relative size, um, what the royalty is worth relative to what the large operating mines in Pan American right. Silver are worth. So they're just certainly not, not a focus. It's not a focus of you know, Pan American Silver to be, to be marketing <laughs> their royalties. They're certainly focused on their, uh, their operating assets. So they would get uh, very little value, and, which was the impetus uh, of creating Mavericks, is, is surfacing and daylighting value for uh, value that uh, they're really not getting any credit for. All right. So Mavericks is formed. You've got the Pan Am royalties. What is the first step that you guys take? And what is the strategy that you're looking to achieve there? Well, the strategy was to build uh, build a royalty company to provide investors with a, an opportunity to really invest at the ground floor uh, on a new and growing royalty company. There are a number of, of large uh, royalty and streaming companies out there, but with respect to kind of the smaller sub, we'll call it $1 billion market cap space, there weren't a lot of options for investors, and Mavericks with a, a strong initial portfolio that was, you know, from Pan American Silver mm-hmm. and with a great team that, that Jeff was able to put together, I think we provided a kind of a unique uh, opportunity to really get in on the ground floor for investors who want that, uh, that royalty exposure. So what was the next asset you acquired after, yeah. after formation? So not long after we got uh, launched, we connected with, uh, with Goldfields based in South Africa, one of the world's leading gold producers, um, you know, with an incredibly uh, long and successful history in the, in the mining space, you know, and over the course of their, you know, many, many decades of an operating company, they had also um, just organically developed this uh, royalty portfolio just through, as I mentioned, whether it's kind of exploration, whether it's M&A, um, whether it's simply joint ventures, they, uh, they at Goldfields had also acquired a very attractive uh, royalty portfolio uh, that consisted of 11 royalties, four of which were paying, uh, predominantly in, in Australia, where Goldfields has, has had operating mines. 
and an operating presence. So has this been your, your strategy? Because you, how did you purchase those? Was that cash or was that by issuing shares? That was an all-equity transaction. Uh, so gold. So when we listed our initial company, Pan American Silver was our, our largest shareholder. This brought in Goldfields as a second major global mining leader mm-hmm. onto our registry. Uh, we paid approximately, depending on what share price uh, you use and with respect to the, the value of the warrants that we did give to Goldfields as part of that transaction, about a U.S. $45 million transaction. Um, and it was, uh, it was you know, uh, I would call it a big win for Mavericks to, to get Goldfields onto our, our shareholder registry as well as it showed their confidence and endorsement in, the, uh, in what we were trying to build here. So you guys are valued at $270 million thereabouts today. And you've done several deals and several acquisitions since then. How many, how many have you done? Well, after the Goldfields transaction, which was December of uh, 2016, that that deal closed. Uh, in 2017, we acquired four more producing royalties in three separate transactions. And then most recently, we announced a new transaction with Newmont Mining, uh, which has not closed yet, but should close by the end of this month, that will see a third, uh, you know, globally uh, gold producer leader joining our, our shareholder registry. So your two largest transactions after founding with uh, both Newmont and Goldfields, you did those for primarily equity. So that means you, you actually issued stock and gave it to the company, um, and they became shareholders in Mavericks, which means you know their value... The, the, the value they're receiving is largely tied to Maverick's success. So what do you think it is that attracted them to Mavericks in particular instead of, I mean, they could have sold those to anyone. So why you guys? Uh, that is a, uh, an excellent question. And, and you're right, both those royalty portfolios were, were very attractive and royalty portfolios are, are difficult to come by. So, you know, they would have had multiple options as to who those, uh, who they could sell those for and for what consideration. So we are, you know, we are, um, you know, lucky that we were the selected counterparties for each of those transactions. And, you know, I can't speak for, for Goldfields and for Newmont, but I, I can say that there must have been some appeal of getting equity in a, in a growing vehicle. If you look at the valuations in the, the royalty space, um, you know, they're substantially higher where, where Mavericks is now. So I think they're, they were able to look at the valuation equation and see some substantial upside and some growth and some re-rate potential uh, if we can continue to grow the business. And, you know, we have seen that through the growth that we've had. And if we can continue to do that, I think the valuation upside is, is very substantial for their shareholders. But you're absolutely right that uh, their ultimate value is is tied to our, our longer-term success. And we'd like to thank them for their support uh, and their confidence and their endorsement in both the team and what we're trying to build here at, uh, at Mavericks. How um, how unusual is that for a primarily equity royalty or streaming deal to go through? Is it there's typically either a total or a very large cash component of these? Is that right? That is exactly right, and I think that as we continue to grow our business, we are shifting more towards cash transactions. But where we've been successful in the past is uh, essentially uh, the counterparties very much want our our equity. Uh, so it's been a, a unique advantage that we've been able to use to grow the business. Yeah, it's almost like a a reverse strategic investor that you see, <laughs> you know, in, in the exploration stage where a major will, yeah. will buy into a mining 
uh, an explorer that they think you know yeah. has future value. They're almost yeah. doing the opposite of that with with the same end in mind. Yeah, I mean, ultimately there is uh, there is going to be a monetization event for these uh, for our shareholders, and you know that could come in a number of different forms. And you know, right now, uh, I think uh, well, at least we here at Mavericks, we we look at uh, the steps that we can take to continue to to build the company up. There's a, a significant amount of value to be unlocked before any of that uh, monetization occurs. Do you own totally just royalties or streams and royalties as well? Or streams uh, as well, sorry. We have one producing stream on the La Colorado mine. We have a stream on the La Bolsa development project and the rest of our portfolio, uh, which is going to grow to about 80 royalties uh, are, are all royalties. And the vast majority of them are cash flowing or soon to be cash flowing? Is that the focus or...? So we'll have, pro form of this transaction, we'll have royalties and streams on 11 producing assets okay. and on 80 assets in total. So what kind of revenue is that pulling in for Mavericks on an annual basis to estimate? Yeah. Well, we gave guidance for 2017 of approximately 30 million Canadian. Uh, that was pro forma, or that was prior to the announcement of the Newmont transaction. Uh, but we have a, a very high margin business model. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll have approximately three million in cash GNA. These numbers are Canadian, and then three million in stream purchases. Um, so, based on a, a, a 30 million dollar revenue, we're looking at EBITDA numbers north of 20 million dollars. Uh, we'll expect to see that grow substantially in 2019 as uh, both the transaction with Newmont closes and some other mines that we have royalties on get get ramped up to full production. You guys have had a lot more success than most companies in negotiating these big transactions with big, well-established companies. What's Mm -hmm. been the, I don't want to say secret, but Mm -hmm. the strategy in getting that done where, you know, not a lot of people are able to do those sort of things. Uh, well, I appreciate you saying that, and we have had uh, a tremendous amount of, of success in, in getting the business launched and continuing to grow it since our, our initial listing. And you know, I'll have to give uh, give credit to, to Jeff Burns on what he brings to the, the table here. Is twelve years in the CEO of a very large operating company. He's developed uh, a, not only a great Rolodex but a great reputation that really mm-hmm. brings some credibility to uh, a company of our modest size when we started off. Uh, also having uh, the support of Pan American Silver, you know, it, it led that endorsement uh, right away to the right. uh, to the Mavericks name. That uh, you know, this is a you know a, a not not a typical junior <laughs> mining yeah, company. Yeah, yeah. So what did you what did you guys go public at your value? What was your market cap when you started out? Our initial market cap, uh, you know, it's interesting because we, the way we structured our transaction was through a, a three-way plan of arrangement. So there was no initial listing value, but our initial value would have been probably in the eighty million dollar Canadian range. And now it's about two hundred seventy. And pro forma, this transaction, uh, we're soon to be approaching uh, four hundred million in, in market cap Canadian. So. Not a bad two years, would you say? It's been busy. It's been busy. It's been fun, and it's been it's been, been been very busy. So, the only criticism I can think of of Mavericks is that you guys don't trade a lot. <laughs> can you explain why that is and the, the issues with that? Certainly, and it's something that we uh, we talk about quite frequently at Mavericks, which is uh, which is liquidity and what our uh, what our share share price and, and share trading volumes do on a daily basis and. Uh, the one thing I can say is that we've never done a public offering uh, as, as a company, which is very unusual, mm-hmm. uh, which 
is a, a, essentially a function of, as to how we got launched. We got launched through Pan American Silver. Uh, we then did equity transactions to, to grow the business as opposed to going out and doing equity financing right. to use, use cash to grow the business. So we've never had that, I'll call it uh, a liquidity event, which has given investors the opportunity to, to get into the story. And we absolutely view liquidity as an asset, and that's going to be the focus of, of Mavericks is, is to grow that capital markets profile. Yeah, you're kind of a, a victim of your own success there in that yeah. you've got a handful of major shareholders yeah, yeah. that don't want to sell their stock. That's, uh, that's, a, gr- that's a great <laughs> way to put it. Uh, you know, we, there's, uh, there's not a lot of sellers out there, so there's not a lot of stock available. I think, uh, you know, we do want to find ways to get uh, um, investors into the story. And if you look at the valuation multiples in the royalty sector, is the larger companies trade at, at much higher valuation multiples than what Mavericks trades at on a, on a cash flow basis. And, you know, one of the biggest reasons that, that people point to for that discount is that liquidity and the, right. the relatively low liquidity. So, you know, we actually see this as a huge opportunity for people to get in at this level uh, as we work on building up that liquidity. Because as we, as we grow the company, that's, uh, that is going to be something that uh, will be a focus of ours. So for the, the retail investors out there who haven't managed or been involved in something like this before, how does a company go about growing their liquidity? What are the steps yeah. you would take? Well, there's multiple uh, different options. I can look back at how Silver Wheaton was very successful at one of the things that uh, one of the approaches that they took, uh, and this is earlier on um, when they were still called Silver Wheaton and not Wheaton Precious, was they would put a credit facility in place. Uh, They would look for a very accretive acquisition. They would complete that acquisition. Uh, They would market that uh, transaction. And generally, it was uh, was very, very well received, which would lead to momentum in the share price, uh, a re-rate, as we would call it. And and at the at the end of that, uh, at some point during that re-rate, they would go to investors, and or investors would, would come to them and, and want to uh, to provide them with additional capital to continue growing their portfolio, right. uh, and that would be through an equity raise, um, and that would give. Uh, give the streamer the opportunity to, to redeploy the capital into another acquisition um, and would also give investors a way to uh, to basically get uh, a, a interest in the company and, and having that shareholder list build up and become more broad and more diverse, that's where you really start to see the, the liquidity and trading volumes come. So beyond adding liquidity over the coming year and, and years, is there anything we can expect or would-be shareholders could expect to see from Mavericks in the next year or so? That's a, no, that's a great question, and that's what we're very excited about uh, uh, here at Mavericks. Is as I mentioned, the, the larger companies uh, do trade at, at much higher valuation multiples uh, for a number of things. It's the liquidity. It's also uh, you have you know, more research coverage. Dividends are a sector of the royalty uh, space. Uh, you have... Uh, additional uh, acquisitions in the mix. So, so for Mavericks, we see uh, we see this as a, a great platform that we've got to uh, to build off of. Uh, so, I think one thing we'll take very seriously is considering a dividend. Um, mm-hmm. As I mentioned, they are a staple of the royalty sector. I think investors like to see that. Right now, uh, pro forma the Newmont uh, transaction. That's something we will be uh, discussing at the board level to uh, to implement a dividend. I think it, that would be very well received by shareholders. Uh, the one thing that uh, we would be looking to do is to ex- expand our existing credit facility. I think 
think if we can put a, a sizable credit facility in place, that would add to the uh, the credibility with kind of large Canadian banks. Uh, you know, essentially endorsing uh, the the concept and the, the model that we have here by uh, agreeing to to put that facility in, in place. Uh, the one thing we are on the TSX venture right now, I believe by the end of this year, our intention is to list on the, the Toronto Stock Exchange, uh, which will uh, open us to a, a broader suite of investors. And, and ultimately, in, in 2019, uh, we would like to see ourselves listed in, in the United States to, again, broaden our, uh, I guess, access to investors. I think each of these steps, you know, builds our capital markets profile and starts to remove that that pretty significant discount uh, that we're trading at to the larger producers. And it really becomes uh, what I would call it, um, you know, momentum building as we take each of those steps in, in building our, our capital markets profile. And, and once you start to build that up, you start to qualify for index inclusion, uh, which will come with additional buying on behalf of, uh, you know, the rebalancing of the index. So we see ourselves at a, at a great position where, uh, you know, tremendous value can be added. What is the the ten year plan for Mavericks? Is it going to be built into a multi billion dollar um, royalty streaming company? Is it going to maybe merge or be sold to another bigger player? What do you, where do you see it going? Well, that's a difficult question, but uh, obviously, not you know, to put we, you on the spot. Obviously, too much. we, we uh, you know we've been very successful in in kind of uh, acquiring additional royalties into the portfolio and building up the portfolio. So completely, our our focus is on continuing to build that portfolio and, and build the you know the underlying asset base that we have. Uh, you know, with that being said, M and A is very mergers and acquisitions are very common in the uh, in the royalty sector as an avenue of growth. So it's it's really hard to to say exactly where where we will be, but we've uh, we've got a great team in place and we've had uh, some some great transactions so far. You know, speaking of your team. How many people are actually working here? <laughs> uh, that's a, no, it's a it's an interesting question because uh, you know royalty and streaming companies typically have uh, a, a much smaller uh, kind of call it general and administrative costs than, mm-hmm. than a, a lot of the traditional underlying operators. But we have a team of seven here, which uh, for a company of our size, uh, you would say that's uh, that's relatively modest. But it's been uh, uh, you know. Uh, um, pretty successful today. That's about fifty million dollar market cap <laughs> per person. I would say. Uh, well, actually, it's been interesting with uh, with what Jeff has been able to 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 bring to the table from a, a technical expertise and, and Rolodex yeah. perspective, because that was one of the the lessons learned is having a, a very strong technical team uh, right from the beginning. You know, Jeff obviously uh, has a long operating background. Uh, you know, and, and where he saw that I could be complimentary, I'm a finance guy by background, is being able to kind of match the the the, the deal making side with uh, the technical kind of people that he he's brought in. I, I just, I guess, I wanted to drive that home. The reason I asked that question mm-hmm. is because, you know, for a mining company to have a market cap of half a billion dollars, say, mm-hmm. they're going to have dozens, if not hundreds of people working at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to have to own and operate mines. They're going to have equipment. They're going to be often in challenging jurisdictions where they can easily be sued or deal with mm-hmm. labor issues. Mm-hmm. For a royalty company, mm-hmm. you're, I mean, 
you guys have an office in Vancouver and seven guys working there. And our focus is on uh, continuing to grow the business and diversify the business. And, you know, 11, we have, uh, as I mentioned, a, a portfolio of 11 royalties and streams that are cash flowing, 80 in total. 11 producing mines would be a very large uh, operating co- company. Yes. Yeah. Um, whereas our focus is on continuing to uh, add to the portfolio, you know, diversify the risk from uh, the asset base as well as to kind of manage the capital structures. That is kind of purely our focus is to, you know, focus on uh, on, on growth. All right. Well, I want to shift gears slightly before we say goodbye. And mutual friends that we have and people we know that have worked together, they, they've always given you a lot of credit of being an excellent strategic thinker, especially mm. in terms of investing in the mining space. Mm. Outside of Mavericks, in your own personal life, you invest fairly significantly in mining as well, right? Uh, well, first of all, that's that's kind of, kind of you to say, and you know, I actively look at uh, at other investments in the mining space. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. What I mean, just so that our our listeners have a chance to you know hear from your experience, what kind of what do you look for in ways to deploy your own personal money? Like, what stage and what characteristics are you are you looking for for deals that you want to be personally involved in? Um, excellent question. I'd say the the first and uh, by far most important thing would be the underlying team. Uh, I learned that uh, in my initial days on investment banking from from George Brack and Marcus Chalk is is the importance of the team that's followed uh, here with uh, with working with with Greg Smith uh, now with Jeff Burns absolutely I believe that uh, that the team is is, is really uh, really important in, in the mining space and you see far too many examples of having great assets that uh, you know haven't been I guess fully capitalized on because of underlying teams and and you know, you've also seen you know great teams being able to to build companies where uh, you know they've had you know relatively modest initial uh, underlying assets. And often, you see those great assets eventually end up in the hands of great teams. It's, it tends to happen. <laughs> it's funny how that tends to happen, but it does uh, you know over the course of time. All right, Dan, do you have any advice for investors who may be financially literate, who may have experience investing? but have no previous experience in the mining or natural resource space that want to enter the sector and sort of get their feet wet? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. I could think of a, a, a number of different uh, answers here, but I'll, I'll just uh, ramble off a couple lessons learned if, that's, uh, if that would be interesting. Yeah, please. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's important uh, just from a portfolio insurance to have some metal price exposure in your portfolio. Uh, it is a good resources in general are, are a nice natural hedge to, you know, the investors' investments in other, you know, more general indices and whatnot. So I do believe that having that precious metals por- uh, exposure in your portfolio is, is very helpful. One of the challenges that the mining space has suffered from is, you know, somewhat of a, a, a reputation for certain examples of not delivering shareholder value over high metal price environments, whether that's been <laughs> technical challenges, balance sheet challenges, you know, simply promoters. And, and on that last point, uh, I think it's for investors, I think it's very important to, to really do some work on, on who you're investing in uh, and how the risk profile of the company is. Uh, you know, single asset 
producers or single asset developers always have a much different risk profile than a, a, a well-diversified operator. And companies with strong balance sheets obviously have a different risk profile than companies with, uh, with substantial amounts of debt. One thing I can say with respect to the, the royalty and streaming sector is that the equities have performed very well on a relative basis across many metal price environments, whether it's, you know, bull markets or, or bear markets or or very kind of range-bound markets. And if we look at some of the reasons why that is, in, in bear market and, and challenging price environments, the, the royalty uh, business model has uh, very high margins. Uh, so as companies, we are able to, to withstand uh, falling uh, price environments. In rising bull market environments, the, the royalty companies have also tended to excel as well. And that's it's somewhat counterintuitive because of that operating leverage that I, mm-hmm. I just commented on. But the one thing that I can say in, in bull market environments is looking at our own portfolio is that the underlying operators are investing significant capital into their own assets, whether it's through construction, expansion, or exploration. And they're doing that for the benefit of their own shareholders, uh, but it's also a benefit for the royalty holders as well. You know, for a specific example, uh, right now we have royalties on five assets that are either in uh, the construction stage or in the expansion stage of uh which would increase their production, which would increase the, the relative cash flow to us. And, you know, for a, a traditional uh, mining company, having five simultaneous growth projects at the exact same time, that would take a lot of people and capital yes. to manage. Yeah. Whereas, you know, for the royalty holders, you know, we see a substantial amount of leverage uh, across uh, our entire portfolios. And in a bull market environment, having 80 assets, uh, which is will be our, our total royalty portfolio, you know, it's a great place to be. And, you know, particularly where we have royalties on very large development assets that might not get built at uh, $1,100 gold, but have a much better chance of being built at $1,400 gold. You know, the amount of just sheer quantum of leverage it, uh, and risk diversification makes the royalty uh, on streaming um, sector a, a, a good entry point for investors who aren't completely familiar with the mining space, where they can look at that diversification, have some exposure to precious metals, but aren't necessarily taking a, a one-off bet on uh, one particular asset. Yeah. Okay, that's good advice. And I actually want to add something to that. You had mentioned that a lot of people sometimes get taken advantage of by promoters, for example. And we've talked about this in this interview, and I've talked about it in other interviews, the importance of teams. And, you know, it's it's very easy to say, back a good team, back a good team. Yeah. Uh, and that's it's even easier for you or I to say that here yeah. when we're sitting in Vancouver and we know personally a lot of these teams and we've yeah. met these people and we know their friends and it's, it's easy to get a good um, understanding. So I would say to people who are listening to this, you know, back teams that have been serially successful. That's the number one way to tell. But the number two way to tell is actually call the company. Um, and you know, I've worked in mining companies, and you get phone calls from investors quite often, but most investors never do. And I would say don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call them and talk to their investor relations department or, or whomever you're able to talk to and get a personal feel for the people you're dealing with. And if they can't answer your questions and explain what they're doing well, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a red herring, and, and 
something to watch out for. And don't be afraid to, to make a phone call. That is excellent advice. Uh, and absolutely, um, you know, at Mavericks, we're very welcome to and open to talking to people. And if a company isn't, uh, that's, a, that's a big red flag. <laughs> so that is a great advice, Jamie. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us today. Yeah. If people are interested in learning more about Mavericks or what you're doing here, what's the best place for them to learn more? Uh, well, on our website, uh, www.maverixmetals.com, M-A-V-E-R-I-X-M-E-T-A-L-S.com. Uh, we have uh, an email address on the site if you'd like to contact the company directly. Uh, our ticker uh, on the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture is MMX. We also do trade over the counter uh, in the U.S. under the ticker MAC. IF. Um, and if there are any questions, please don't, don't hesitate to reach out and, and uh, contact the company. And Jamie, I uh, appreciate uh, you taking the time to have a chat today. Dan, thanks for sitting down and thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.